0: So what's the point in joining a church? I've been asked that question a lot over the years. Sometimes if it isn't stated explicitly, I know it rides just below the surface of many conversations when I'm out and about. People who aren't members of religious organizations often have crinkled brows when they're looking at me trying to figure it out. How is it that I came to do the thing that I do in the place that I do it. This is especially true in a rambunctious secular city like New York. I imagine their thinking goes something like this How is it that this reasonable and personable man who seems to fall within the bounds of normal wound up being a minister and a Methodist one at that, whatever that means? On more than one occasion especially here in secular new york city i have felt like a kind of exotic specimen flower interesting but otherwise not terribly useful some of you have certainly asked yourself the church question right it's a good question god knows the church demonstrates imperfection with a rich catalog of sins to its discredit over the centuries But as for that, it's useful to remember that the church is only people. Yes, people who supposedly listen for the voice of God, but people, nevertheless, with their full range of potentials from the great to the depressing. Still, for all of the members foibles, the church has managed to hold the spiritual aspirations of millions, well, billions of people seeking to follow the way of Jesus for centuries, and it remains a glorious repository of sacred wisdom forged in humanity's dynamic and complicated relationship with God, as well as with one another. From time to time, I think it's useful to consider the point of all this. I mean, all of this. All of this architecture and music and whatnot, all the programming you see advertised, what does all of this actually mean anyway? And where has the motivation come from for attaching yourselves either formally or informally to this particular group of seekers? Even if you've grown up in church, if your religion is vitally authentic, inevitably you've asked these sorts of questions. So what if you grew up Methodist or Catholic or something else entirely. What did that association mean and what does it have to do with what's deeply important about life? I've now been attached to Christ Church long enough to be able to say that my presence here predates more, get this, more than 98 percent of the people who now show up for worship. I look around in wonderment sometimes, thinking that surely the congregants wouldn't have chosen to assemble the people here on their own. You wouldn't have picked the people who share these chairs as your likely siblings, right? Or this virtual space? You took something of a gamble, I suppose, when you staked out your spot. At least some may have thought about it like that. Of course, Others hang out at the edges, conflicted about the meaning or better, the commitments of belonging. What does belonging mean anyway? Often I find these persons are very interesting in this way. They take the matter of membership very seriously, sometimes more so than those who've joined. Of course, others perseverate in their questions forever. The thing is, To state the obvious, joining a church requires a decision. It concerns matters of meaning and life direction. It is staking a claim, and a rather important one at that, potentially among the most important one could make. And I don't mean here that in some, I don't mean it in some narrow parochial sense as in Methodist or Catholic and and so forth. I mean it in a fundamental life-orienting sense. For instance, You showed up in worship today, and you heard an ancient text read dating from 2,800 years ago, attributed to someone named Jeremiah. During any given worship, you may or may not be paying attention to all the goings-on in here, but today we had an opportunity to hear Jeremiah announce poignant and fundamental wisdom. In essence, he said, there is an elemental choice to make in life. Trusting ourselves above all things, or trusting God? He likened those who fundamentally trusted themselves and their own powers and abilities to a shrub in the desert that lived in the parched places of the wilderness, and arid salt land. He said peoples who made that choice were cursed. Why? Because they cut themselves off from life-giving water. On the other hand, Those who trusted God were like a tree planted by a stream, sending out its roots to the water. This tree shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit." Jeremiah says that people who choose to be planted by this stream are blessed. Note that he does not say there will never be a drought, Instead, he says that come what may, their roots will always have true water. That's the blessing. And even in the time of drought, they will still be able to bear fruit. I find this a simple, beautiful, and powerful image. Trusting ourselves, trusting God. Pretty basic, I know. But then as I often say, we often lose track of the basics, even those of us who have hung around places like this for the better part of our lives. And yet, where else in our culture, where else in our daily and mundane affairs would this sort of wisdom be routinely accessed and affirmed? Do you hear that at your workplace, on the street, in the media, at school? Addressing these questions, we begin to approach the reasons for our fellowship. To stretch the image a bit, we could think of ourselves as a, quote, stand of trees that have been transplanted by the stream of life-giving water. That sounds rather ennobling, doesn't it? At least it does to my ears. In part, this describes why I've given myself to this work a kind of uh, tree horticulturalist. So maybe I am a kind of exotic flower after all. If this image speaks to you at all, it probably means you understand the nature of the choice Jeremiah describes concerning this matter of ultimate trust. We live in a culture that values individual autonomy and self-sufficiency above all else. Now, to a certain degree, autonomy and self-sufficiency are healthy and useful, but the self is not God. The individual ego can never really stand alone successfully. All of us thrive within an intricate web of interdependencies. By ourselves, each of us makes for a very weak and puny God, as Jeremiah says, like a shrub in an arid desert cut off from water. So when we're at our best in here, joining the church is a way to put a tangible and symbolic action to this fundamental choice. In this way, it can matter quite a lot. We are staking a claim. We make explicit that self, even myself, is not the center of the universe. God is. I'm indebted to our Christ Church friend and theologian, Christopher Morse, for pointing out that whenever we stake a claim like this, we're announcing what we believe as well as what we disbelieve. As an example, in his book, Not Every Spirit, he references the earliest Christian confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. Those words are overly familiar to many of us, maybe reduced to a platitude and quite removed in meaning from anything particularly political. But the term Lord had a secular meaning in the Roman world. Only Caesar could be Lord. The loyalty oath, the pledge of allegiance throughout the empire was expressed in the words, Kyrios Caesar, Caesar is Lord. Baptism in such an environment was a radically political act. For the confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, represented a subversive claim. Baptism claimed a life orientation that included some things but excluded others and identified ultimate loyalties. Interestingly then, Christians wound up being persecuted less for what they believed than for what they disbelieved. They got into trouble by their absence from the imperial shrines. Now, we have different imperial shrines today, different competitors for our ultimate allegiance. But you see the point. I want to underline the stakes in our activity here. When we choose to be among a stand of trees by living water, we can't be standing elsewhere simultaneously. We are here, not there. You know exactly how this is at any given worship service. You cannot be here and somewhere else simultaneously. Yes, of course, once we affirm our ultimate loyalties, those loyalties come with us wherever we are. Having staked my claim here, if I find myself in Timbuktu, my roots still drink from living water. But staking one's claim is a crucial bit of business. For some, this is quite dramatic. For others, it's a quiet and slow acceptance. Still others find it a very, very great struggle. But whatever the case, there do come moments to make the choices that demand our attention. And we all know from personal experience that not to choose is paradoxically a very definite choice. In a couple of weeks, we'll be welcoming new siblings into our family during in-person worship. They'll be affirming a choice of setting deep roots near to living water. One or two may receive this water for the first time. It's no coincidence that baptism is a ritual with water, by the way. The water metaphor is ancient and elemental, The old person is drowned, as it were, in a tidal force of love and grace. In honor of this, and as a reminder for all of us of what it means to choose the God of life and love as our grounding allegiance, I offer a hymn prayer that comes from the Iona community in Scotland. Come, host of heaven's high-dwelling place. Come, earth's disputed guest. Find in this house a welcome home. Stay here and take your rest. Surround these walls with faith and love, that through the nights and days when human tongues from speaking cease, these stones may echo praise. Here may the losers find their worth, the strangers find a friend. Here may the hopeless find their faith and aimless find an end. Build from the human fabric signs of how your kingdom thrives, of how the Holy Spirit changes life through changing lives. So to the Lord whose care enfolds the world held in his hands be glory honor and love and praise for which this house now stands.